Our first scripture passage this morning is Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And place and God placed all things under his feet and anointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Our second passage this morning is from Matthew 25, 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when, we did, when did we see you? Hungry, or thirsty, or stranger, or needing clothes, or sick in prison, and did not help you. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these, 
you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, and but the righteous to eternal life. Our series this month has been called Worthy. And on this journey, this brief journey through these four Sundays of November, we have been, in a sense, raising our eyes, raising our vision to see God's glory. We consider God's worthiness of praise, of our praise, of our worship. In fact, we have mentioned repeatedly that the word worship in the English language comes from the Old English, worthship. That's where the W-O-R in worship comes from, is the worth of that which is truly worshipped or worshipped rightly. We have been on a tour of some biblical scenes of God's majesty and glory, The primary one is this scene in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 of the heavenly throne room and the almighty God on the throne and, and angels and elders gathered around singing praises, you are worthy. And then the entrance of the one who is worthy, the only one worthy to open the scroll which represents the unfolding of God's plan of salvation to save all of creation And the only one who is worthy is the lamb who has been slain. That is a figure of Jesus. Jesus, the crucified and risen and exalted Lord. He is the Savior. And all of heaven and all of creation begins to sing at this penultimate moment before the ending battle of all time commences That Jesus is worthy of all glory and honor and praise and wealth, etc., etc., and, and, and. But it's not just the book of Revelation where we learn of Jesus being exalted as Lord of all, being lifted high and worthy of being glorified. We see that in the epistles of the New Testament. Jancy preached a wonderful sermon last week where she preached from Romans chapter 8 and speaking of, of how the Spirit meets us in the midst of our groaning and in our, in our human, well, in the suffering of what it means to be human and then lifts us up to the glory that is Christ's. But it's not just the epistles of the New Testament. It's actually in the Gospels themselves, in the words of Jesus, where Jesus speaks of a day in which he will be lifted high and exalted, worthy of our worship. Today is Christ the King Sunday, as I mentioned before. It's the Sunday in the liturgical calendar before the season of Advent begins. 
It's Christ the King because it's meant to help prepare us for the why of Advent and Christmas. If we are to welcome a newborn king, what does it mean that Jesus is coming to be the king? That Jesus is coming to be the one who embodies and inaugurates the reign of God. Theologian Marva Dawn, who until her recent death was one of the most influential voices on Christian worship in the past half century, describes how important it is to recognize this aspect of God's glory. So I think Marva Dawn, in this quote, kind of sums up the journey that we've been on with our sights being raised. She writes this, Worship ought not to be construed in a utilitarian way. Its purpose is not to gain members for our church to be seen as successful. Rather, the entire reason for our worship is that God deserves it. Worship immerses us in the regal splendor of the king of the cosmos and provides opportunities for us to enjoy God's presence in corporate ways that take us out of time and into the eternal purposes of the kingdom of God. So in this month, we have been intentionally looking at the grandeur, the scope of God and of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. Exaltation is what we have been exploring. But there's a question that goes along with this. You might have been thinking this yourself. I think Jancy began to explore this last week. And this is the question. Is there separation in the exaltation? Otherwise known as how high is too high? In a society like ours, with a fair amount of social mobility, regular folk like you and me, might know someone who has risen to the ranks of celebrity status because we knew them and they knew us back then. In their ascent to fame, did they ascend too high to remember us? Or as the case may be, for those of us who are celebrities... Did we ascend too high that we don't even remember the people we came from? Are you familiar with the the phenomenon called six degrees of separation? It's the idea that all people on earth uh, are six or fewer social connections away from each other. Now this has turned into a parlor game called the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Have you played that? A parlor game where people attempt to link any actor with this particular actor named Kevin Bacon based on who appeared with him in a movie. So if Kevin Bacon appeared with someone in a movie, then you would connect that person who appeared with him with another person, etc., etc., and you can link any actor within those six degrees. Now, Kevin Bacon himself, by the way, real person, his real name, Born in Philadelphia, the youngest of six children, his dad was an urban planner, his mom was an elementary school teacher. Never met him. 
But you know what? If we played this game, you know, it might be less than six. You never know. Now, this is not as common in some cultures with less social mobility. And especially in places where there's more of a rigid social structure, especially when it comes to people who are of high status because they are in power. Think of the UK and the royal family. The kids might uh, are likely to grow up around other high-status children. But one thing that is true, the children of the royal family in England attend college and serve in the military with regular folk. So the first time I visited the United Kingdom, uh, my wife and I were attending uh, a theology conference co-sponsored by uh, Princeton Seminary and St. Andrews University. It was in St. Andrews University, and we were uh, staying in in a dorm at St. Andrews University, and it is called St. Salvator's Hall. Now, as a dorm, it's nothing to speak of. Kind of not even as good as some of the dorms that, uh, that our students live in uh, around here. But the word on the street at the conference was that there was a special student who was a resident there during the school year. And so there was a lot of conversation among us at the breakfast table and the dinner table about wondering which one of us were actually staying in the room that is that person's room. Not long before that, there was a young woman who started attending that school and also stayed at, uh, was in residence at St. Salvator's Hall in this not very fancy dorm. Uh, Her parents worked for British Airways. Uh, Her mom actually was descended from coal miners. She had worked as a deckhand at a seaport in the south of England the summer before she enrolled at St. Andrews. And during her studies, she worked in town part-time as a waitress. Now, she caught the attention of this special student who his fellow students referred to as Steve. Now, Steve wasn't his name, but they called him Steve so that the eavesdropping press would not notice they were talking about this particular individual. Now, they met each other, this woman and this special dude, and they began a relationship and a love affair that is continuing before the whole world. And I'm speaking of none other than Prince William and Kate Middleton. But the question is, even now, but especially when William becomes king and Kate is promoted to that high position of royalty, will they have ascended too high for those classmates from long ago? Will those classmates still be able to reach out to Steve? (laughs) What about the people who were just there having a meal and enjoyed conversing with Kate Middleton, the waitress? Or the people who worked side by side with her as a deckhand at this seaport? The exaltation of Jesus is such an important part of our theology in the church. It is throughout Scripture. We can't avoid it. 
It happens in Revelation, like I mentioned, this heavenly throne room. It happens in Philippians chapter 2. We read a portion of that chapter when we read what's called the Carmen Christi, which is an ancient uh, creed of the church that's in the book of Philippians. It speaks of, of Jesus being exalted above every name and every, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus deserves all the glory. And we see it again in Ephesians 1, the text that Meg read for us. I'm going to read it again here, a portion, starting in verse 18. The Apostle Paul is writing this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power just in case you might underestimate that power, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above, far above, every rule and authority, all power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only, okay, did you get the all? Every. But not only in this age, but also in the one to come for eternity. And God placed, just in case we haven't gotten the picture yet, what does that mean? Okay, Paul continues and tells us what that means. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills everything in every way. This elevates Jesus. It also elevates those who are in Christ because his glorious riches are meant for us as well. But let's go back to that phrase, far above. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked in this present age, but also in the one to come. And I have the distinct privilege of sharing this and proclaiming this from this, well, it's a metaphorical pulpit. But it's a preaching ministry of a church in the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. But that the gospel is that Jesus has been elevated far above every name in the history books and every name that you see written across digital screens in your life and my life. There's not one name that we see there who is elevated above Jesus. That's the gospel, friends. Amen. Amen. And that includes every emperor or empress, king or queen, prime minister or president, millionaire and billionaire, titan of industry or high-tech mogul. Above every name. Yes, Jesus is exalted. And we serve him. And he is our hope. He is our hope. But there's that question. Has there been separation in the exaltation? Far above. I mean, how high is too high? We've said a lot here about Jesus. And you might be wondering, well, I remember when Jesus was just one of us. I mean, I remember the Jesus 
with worn-out sandals and dusty feet. Sure, he was special. I mean, the miracles. He was a miracle man. But he was approachable. He, he wasn't too good to hang around regular folk. But what about now? What about now when Jesus is so high and mighty? This question has been probed by singer-songwriter Rich Mullins in his song, Hard to Get. It was a song that he wrote toward the end of his life, which was cut short in a motorcycle accident. And this was recorded posthumously by his friends, including Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant. And the first verse goes like this. It's a prayer to Jesus. Do you who live in heaven hear the prayers of those of us who live on earth? Who are afraid of being left by those we love? Who get hardened in the hurt? Do you remember when you lived down here? Where we all scrape to find the faith to ask for daily bread? Did you forget about us after you had flown away? Well, I memorized every word you said. Still, I'm so scared, I'm holding my breath while you're up there just playing hard to get. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 is often not noticed as an exaltation text, and yet it is. It is Jesus' parable of the kingdom of the sheep and the goats. And when the king who is the Son of Man, that was Jesus' name, identifying Himself as the Savior, as the Messiah. Jesus is the King. And a judgment happens. The King is exalted and now rightfully judges all of humanity. And this text in Matthew 25 goes a long way toward answering the question, what kind of king is Jesus? If Jesus is far above, is Jesus still able to connect with us here below? In verse 32, it speaks of all the nations gathering before the Son of Man. This phrase, all the nations, is the same word as in the Great Commission a few chapters later. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. For most of history until the 1700s, People interpreted this text to be a judgment of the church and how they care for one another. Because it was a very common thing in the history of the church for those who were Christians to be poor and struggling and at risk of their very lives. The, the, the number of Christians throughout history who have been wealthy by the world standards is very small. But as we extend it 
as the church does now in, in reading it, extending it universally to refer to a judgment of all those who live, judging how we all relate to all those who suffer the named indignities in this text. What happens in this text is we are reminded of who Jesus is. So if Jesus is above every name, there are names that he is above that he knows and he remembers, and they are the names of the least of these, his brothers and sisters. Those likely to be forgotten by the powerful. This text has often been described as Jesus distressing disguise because of how much he himself identifies with people that he's describing. He doesn't just say, hey, when you serve these people and you help them out, that's a good thing. He says, when you were doing this, it was like you were doing it directly to me. It's the only place, and these are the only people that Jesus has those words for. The hungry, the people we see hungry that Jesus invites us to give something to eat. Those who are thirsty, who need something to drink. Those who are strangers, who need us to invite them in. Those who need to be clothed, are clothed. Those who are sick and need looking after. Those in prison, who are alone and need visiting. It's such a temptation, isn't it, to ignore these folks? Or even in our worldview, to, to focus on needs that aren't actually listed here. We might be really passionate. They're, it's, they're not bad needs, but there's something about this list, isn't there, that unites us as human beings, human to human. And what each of these has in common is they are, they are deep needs, unmet. And those people who are experiencing these needs may be and probably will be shunned by polite society wherever they live on this globe. Jesus spent his time around folks like these. He spent time around tax collectors and sinners, as the gospel say. I was reminded in our teaching this morning on solitude about Mark chapter 1, where, where the disciples brought to Jesus all the sick and the demon-possessed. The people who, who we would be tempted to run away from, bring them to Jesus. These are the least of, Je- of Jesus' brothers and sisters. So how does this impact our lives today? How does it impact the church? Well, in the Presbyterian Church USA, we have this understanding of the mission of the church where there are six what are called great ends or purposes of the church. And the sixth is this, the exhibition of the kingdom of heaven to the world. An exhibit is a public display Think of exhibits that you've seen in museums. I remember when I think of exhibits, I think of, of um, the World's Fair when it was in Vancouver, British Columbia. Anyone go there? 
if you're a local to here. For some reason, I remember the Russia exhibit because there was an absolutely huge statue of Lenin's head. <laughs> it wasn't long before things kind of blew up uh, there, but an exhibit is a public display. Daryl Guder, uh, in his theological exposition of this particular great purpose of the church, said this, to exhibit is to be, to do, and to carry out spirit-empowered witness to the inbreaking reign of God personified in Jesus Christ, the rising and now reigning Lord. We witness and show the values of God's reign in solidarity with and mercy toward the least of these who are Christ's brothers and sisters. Until Jesus comes, until we are raised to be with him, Jesus continues on mission and invites us to join him in that mission. And that mission includes witnessing to the one who identifies with the least. John Mark Comer, who's been leading our, our study of the spiritual practice of solitude, mentions the call of God and how prayer relates to our calling in ministry and mission. He used this phrase, we retreat from the world for the world. We retreat from the world for the world. We don't study prayer and solitude and practice that so that we'll never have to do ministry with the homeless. We do it because that's where we will meet Jesus. And if we don't spend the time in prayer, we're not going to hear that still small voice saying, yes, in the midst of all these other voices and all these other things that you can commit your life to, we might miss that voice. We need to hear that voice. But that voice is always going to lead us back into Matthew 25 territory. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Friends, may this ever be an expression, an exhibition of the life, love, and hope that we have in Christ, our exalted and risen and yet very near Savior. Amen.